So uh, it is that time of year. It is uh, Christmas time. And um, so we're starting uh, a series in Advent. You know, it's really about Advent is this season and this season where we celebrate uh, the coming of Jesus. Advent really just means like a coming or an arrival. And uh, that is typically what we do as a church in this season. And, you know, Christmas is very interesting because it's probably one of the last surviving, not completely commercialized holidays. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, Christmas is commercialized. <laughs> like it's, it's commercialized a ton. There's a ton of money that we spend in this season. There's a lot of, uh, you know, gift giving and decorating and kind of doing all these things. Um, so it is, you know, in a sense, it is commercialized to some degree. But at the same time, it remains different than a lot of the other holidays. I would argue kind of all the other holidays because the way that we do it in this season is different than we would do it, for example, for like Thanksgiving or Halloween or Valentine's Day. It's a little bit different. I think there's something about those other holidays that feels very um, obligatory, right? And I don't know if you, <laughs> I don't know what you did, you know, during any of those things like, you know, Halloween or like Thanksgiving, those things just passed, right? And even though I think to some degree we in- will enjoy some of those things, but there's something in us that's very like, ah, well, let's just get this over with. Right? There's some part of us, like if you're, if you're in a relationship and you celebrate Valentine's Day, even as you do it, if you go out to dinner or something, like even as you're doing it, there's a little bit where you're th- kind of like rolling your eyes. Like, is this really, like, are we really, is this really that important? No, we're kind of doing it. Even when you do it, you're thinking, we're kind of doing it just because people do it. Do we really think that this is a significant day? Is this a significant holiday? Some of you like, you know, Halloween maybe. For some of us, it's like, you're, I'm not going to dress up for Halloween. Like, why would I do that? There's no significance to this day. It's just maybe something that we do. But Christmas is different. It really, it really is different. Like, people like getting trees and decorating them. People like putting up, well, maybe you don't like putting up lights, but you like having lights up, right? Like, in your, in your house or something. I mean, look at, look at this thing. We got this big old decked out you know, Christmas tree here. It's like Christmas is one of the only times when it's kind of okay to still remain uncynical, when tradition is still meaningful and it doesn't have to be undermined or modernized. And so, like, you don't have to roll your eyes at Christmas. And in fact, you can even say something like, it's Christmas. And that means something, right? Like, hey, come on, like, be nice. It's Christmas time. Right? That still means something to people. You don't say that, right, like any other time, right? Like, hey, come on, man. It's Columbus Day. Dude, like, you know, it's veterans. Like, you don't do that. There's no other day. Even Thanksgiving, like, you don't do that any other day. Those things don't mean anything. But if you say something about Christmas, there's something about singing songs. There's something about wearing an ugly sweater or having a gift exchange that is still not, it's, like, acceptable, even though it's corny, maybe, even though it's a little, you know, it's a little bit, it's like kind of old-fashioned, but it's like, okay, it's Christmas. And I'm all for it, right? Like, we got a tree up in our house already. We got, you know, we do an Advent thing. 
um, for the kids, like a calendar, and we, you know, they get little little ornaments that Boomy made, like a felt tree, and there's little ornaments that they get to put on it, and there's verses, you know, that they read every day, and it's cool. It's like fun, you know. I the other day <laughs> we were decorating the tree, and we buy like one ornament every year, and I bought this little nativity scene. And I put it up, and I spent like like 15 minutes trying to get a Christmas light to be right in there in the nativity scene so, like, it would shine on baby Jesus. And, like, I was literally just doing that for, like, like 15 minutes. I'm like, oh, it's, it's not working. Like, it's not happening correctly. So, like, I'm, I'm all for it. I like it. However, we have to know, we have to realize that it can go bad, right? It can go bad if... The kind of terminology that we've used in the past is if the shadow does not point to the substance, right? If, if, if it's just an echo, a disembodied echo, it's not connected to, it's not attached to the voice, right? If, if it's just something, but it's not connected to a reality. That's what can happen. If all our traditions are, we, they in and of themselves just exist, and they don't link back to, they're not anchored in some real thing. And so what we want to do in this season, you know, it's called the season of awe and wonder, because that's really what this season evokes in us, where it's okay to kind of be a little naive, you know, it's to wish for things, to be hopeful, to, to just kind of sit there and be like, oh, that's, that's cool, that's fun, I like that. We want to take that which is invoked in which is evoked in us this season, and we want to turn it toward Christ. You know, we want to be leveraging the awe and wonder that we naturally feel and connect it to the hope and peace and joy of God. You know, how can we do that? Um, today we're going to just be talking about hope. You know, what, what happens with hope and how our hope can be directed toward God. That's what we're going to be looking at today. So if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to uh, Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter, we'll actually start at the end of chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse, um, verses 20, and we're going to start in verse 23. Genesis 2, 23, we'll read uh, all the way through 3.15. And uh, this is God's word, and it says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so this is the end of Genesis 2, kind of the end of creation uh, and, it, you know, God created everything right in six days. This is kind of the end of that. It creates Adam. Um, says it's not good for Adam to be alone. So then he creates Eve, the woman, uh, to be with Adam. And, and this is the picture of what creation was like, what existence was like before sin. Right? And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing, really. I mean, and this is a passage that we go to a ton of times. Like, I've looked at it, and I know I've preached, you know, Genesis two and three, uh, a bunch of times, and I've looked at this passage so many times, but there's so much here. There's so much depth here. There's so much about what God has created and about what the natural order is. I mean, there's stuff about, 
God's commandments. There's stuff about community. There's stuff about marriage. I mean, there's a ton of stuff here. And even just looking at that verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, that alone is such an incredible verse because post-sin, it's both so hard to be naked, not just, you know, not just physically, but kind of emotionally or, or stripped down in a sense to be vulnerable in that way. And then also attached to it to be not ashamed. That's an incredible picture of what uh, a relationship can be like, what a marriage can be like, what community can be like. And that is the picture of creation at the end of Genesis 2. Now, of course, we know what happens in Genesis 3. For most of us, if you've been in church, um, this is the fall. But... Um, This is Genesis 3. Let's read on here. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, already a couple things are happening. Uh, the serpent is misquoting what God originally said. God never said you can't, you know, touch any tree. He just, he just said you cannot eat of the fruit of the, the tree in the middle of the garden, right? And then when Eve goes back and says and kind of explains, she says, no, we couldn't eat of any of the trees except for the one in the middle. She also says you can't touch it, which is an added thing. God never said that part. And so she's already kind of, you know, Satan's already doing his job a little bit. And he's already trying to convince her that something's wrong. Uh, Verse 4, it says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, now, I want to talk about verse 7. Like, very quickly, I just want to explain what's happening here in the other verses, and then I really want to get to verse 7. What Satan does, and this is the way Satan operates all the time, is he attacks God's promises, right? He wants to make God seem oppressive. He wants to make it seem as though God doesn't want what's good for you, but God wants to limit you. God wants to hold you back in some way, and that's the way that he presents his case. He says, is God really so bad? You know, is he really so oppressive, so controlling that he won't let you eat, you know, such and such, twisting God's promise, but also making it seem like it's a big thing, right? Now, and I've made this case many times here, but... Adam and Eve had a great deal, right? They could do anything that they wanted. They could swim in any river. They could eat anything. They could play with any animal. They could go anywhere. They just couldn't eat of one fruit of one tree in the garden. That was the only restriction that God had put on them. And yet somehow Satan turns that into the biggest thing, right? Here's the hugest thing. This one thing that God says you can't do, man, God is so controlling. He won't even let you do that one thing. Even though there's so much they can do, Satan gets Eve to focus on the one thing that God has restricted. And he makes it seem like that's a really big thing. And then he denies God the actual consequence of sin. 
He says, you won't die. Right? God's just lying to you. In fact, if you eat of this fruit, you'll become like God. You're going to be great. You're going to be like God. And, you know, nothing bad is going to happen. So that causes, you know, Eve to take the fruit. Of course, she gives some. Adam's right there, not doing his job, you know, just watching what's going on. He eats some of the fruit. And so there, now, now, that's what happens. And then verse 7, here's where they are. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So the end of 2, when they're naked and unashamed, is reversed. Now they know they're naked. All of a sudden, they're aware of themselves. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So they sew fig leaves together. They have to cover themselves in some way because all of a sudden, they're aware that they're naked. And... Essentially, they run away, which we'll see. They run away from each other. Now, here's what's happened, okay? Um, They've lost some things here because of sin. One, they have lost their innocence. Right? They've lost their innocence. Before, they were naked and unashamed. Now, because of sin, they no longer feel unashamed in their nakedness. So they've lost that innocence. Now, before, where they didn't think about themselves, right? it's almost in a sense of they were not aware of themselves. right? It says the, the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. So before, it's kind of like they didn't know they were naked. They didn't realize, like they were not aware almost of their own nakedness. But because they lost that innocence, all of a sudden, they're aware of their nakedness. They've lost... Also, their intimacy, right? They were together. They were naked and unashamed together. They had this relationship. Of course, they had this relationship with God. God was just walking with them. He was with them. They were just with each other. There were no secrets. There was no fear. There was no shame. Now, they've lost that. So they feel the need to cover up. So they cover themselves. And they run away. Now, thirdly, they have lost their awe. They have lost their awe of God. Because before, when they thought of God as the creator of the universe, they were like, wow, God is amazing. Right? Look at this. Like everywhere they go, right, they see, they experience awe of God. Look at this river. Wow, God created this. Look at this tree. God created this. Look at this fruit. Taste it. Oh, it's delicious. God created this. These animals, God created them. But after sin... They no longer see the glory of God. All they feel is judgment, right? They know that the creator of the universe who gave us one rule to obey, which we have broken, is not going to let this stand. So now they're waiting in fear. They're like, they can't experience, you know, like, like, like they're doomed, right? So they, they have found themselves in this completely hopeless situation. Things have turned, and now they cannot experience the world the same way they did before, right? Like, have you guys seen the movie Titanic? You guys seen the movie Titanic? You know, and they're Jack and Rose, right? They're, you know, Leo, right? It's, it's, it's young Leo DiCaprio. He's like, you know, king of the world, right? He's doing this kind of stuff. They're playing, right? They're running around the ship, and they go below, and they're doing, like, these dancing, this party and stuff like that, right? And they're just having fun. Now, what happens? You know, ship hits an iceberg, right? And it's going down. 
What does the movie turn into? It's like it changes completely, right? Now it's a, it's a survival story. People are running to the back of the ship. You know, everyone's trying to, like, scramble to survive, right? Nobody's still, like, just partying, right? The ship's going down. People aren't just like, whatever. You know, it don't matter. Like, let's just eat and drink it up. No, nobody's doing that. Right? It's really sad. People, some people have resolved. I, I mean, they've just, like, accepted their fate, right? Like, there's an old couple... And they just kind of like drown in together, and it's like so sad. You're like, oh no, that's sad. There's the, you know, the the dudes, you know, the, the guy. They're like playing the violins, and they're like, we're going down, right? Like we're just gonna we're just gonna play because we're going. We have just accepted our fate, our doom. Like the guys playing the violins, right? They're not like, hey, hey, dude, you messed up in measure three, right? Like back up. Let's do it again. Like let's practice more. Right? No, they've, they've given up on that. Like, who cares? Because the ship is going down. Nobody's, like, sending their drinks back, right? Like, hey, this, this is a little, I, this is not what I ordered, right? Like, nobody cares about that anymore. So Adam and Eve, knowing that the judgment of God is upon them, they're no longer like, hey, well, you know, we ruined paradise, but did you want to go check out that river over there? Like, you know, are we still doing... Are we still, is it still mountain day? Like, you know, what are we doing, right? Like, that, no, that's all over. They are in a state of complete hopelessness. Like, what's the point? Right? Like, what's, what's the point of, of glory anymore when we know we are under judgment? Like, what is the point? What is the point of betterment when we already know we've broken our innocence? What's the point of intimacy when we know we can't really be vulnerable with each other because we have this sin. We have this gross stain on us. There's a sense that nothing will work. There's a complete and utter hopelessness at this point in the story. Genesis 3, 7. Now, this is the hopelessness that sin creates in us. See, sin, the promise of sin, is always that it'll be good. right? And in fact, sometimes... Um, Sin seems to work temporarily for a little bit, right? I don't think it actually works, but it seems like it does, right? Like idolatry works for a little bit. You invest yourself fully into something that is not God. You know, it's, a, it's work. It's a person. It's a thing. You know, it's a show, whatever, right? It's money. You invest yourself fully in it, and for a little bit, it seems like it works. And then at some point, it all falls apart. It's like addiction. It works for a little bit. It seems like it's working for a little bit because I feel a little bit better and I feel like a little bit happier and, and I'm managing things, you know, like my life is still okay, but then it all falls apart. It's like, it's like Vegas kind of. Maybe that's why they call it Sin City. But, you know, you go to Vegas and people always think, oh, well, I, oh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm winning. Like I'm up on Vegas. You will never stay up on Vegas, Right? All Vegas has to do is say, stay here longer, and you will lose, right? And if you stay there long enough, you will lose everything. That's how sin works. You stay there long enough, you'll lose everything. You will sell your house. You'll start donating blood three times a week, you know, to just, like, stay afloat. So it seems like it works for a little bit, but then eventually it'll trap you in a completely hopeless situation and that will lead us to fear and doubt and pessimism and anxiety which will control our lives the totality of our thoughts so how do we fix that problem right that's that's a big problem 
How do we fix it? Okay, let, let's read on. Verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Okay, so God confronts Adam and Eve. He goes to Adam first. He says, Where are you? And he calls out to him. Now, it's interesting to note just the fact that God calls out to him. Of course, God can just call him out, right? Like that he calls out to him instead of calling him out. Because he could just say, Adam, I see you there <laughs> behind that tree, right? In those, <laughs> those ugly <laughs> whatever, like little fig leaves you created for yourself. Come here, right? Stand here before me and receive judgment. But he does it, right? He's like, where are you? Like, where are you? He's, what did you do? Right. Again, he could say, Adam, I saw you. I saw you stand there and do nothing while your wife was being deceived and eating the fruit. And then when she gave you the fruit, you just ate it like a dummy. Right. Like God could say that, but he doesn't. He says, what what happened? What would you do? Of course, Adam doesn't take it well. He just blame shifts. He says, the woman that you put here, God, remember at the end of chapter 2, when I was alone and happy, and then you brought this, this woman? And then he says, Eve, what is this that you have done? And she says, where'd this serpent guy come from, right? Because he came out of nowhere and just tricked me. Which brings us to uh, God's judgment. Right, so this is verse 14. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right, And, and for those of you who've been here, you know, this is the proto-evangelion. This is the first gospel, right? It's very vague. It's not super specific, right? But he's saying somewhere down the line, somebody's going to be born of a woman, right? Down from Eve all the way down. Eve, you're going to have kids, and your kids are going to have kids, and those kids are going to have kids. And somewhere down the line, someone is going to be born, your offspring, and there's going to be war between Satan's offspring and between, you know, the God's offspring, like God's remnant, God's people. And there's going to be this battle, this throwdown, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, meaning he will suffer some small defeat, but he will have, he will achieve some great victory. He's going to, he's going to crush your head. How do we fix the problem of sin? Here's the simple answer. We don't. We can't. We cannot do anything to fix this. What do Adam and Eve do to fix sin? They do nothing. They double down on their sin, in fact. Right? 
Instead of coming clean in the moment and saying, God, we messed up. We broke the one rule that you gave us not to break. In fact, it's much greater than that, right? Because they have broken their covenant relationship with God. When I, when I wear shoes in the house, if I have to run in and get something and I wear shoes in the house, I have broken a rule, okay? Because I'm not supposed to do that. That's breaking a rule. If I cheat on Boomi, I have broken our covenant. Big difference, right? It's not rule breaking, it's covenant breaking. This is what Adam and Eve have done. So they, they got nowhere to go from here. They can't fix it, so God fixes it. God says, I'll fix it. Here's, and the first thing that he does, right, he says, I'm going to give you hope. You were completely devoid of hope because of sin. You have no hope for awe. You have no hope to have any kind of betterment or a restoration of your innocence, you know, holiness, essentially. You have no hope for intimacy because you have violated these things. And the first thing God does is he says, I'm going to restore your hope. I'm going to give you this promise that one day this will be fixed. Right? Everything that Satan has done is going to be crushed. There's going to be some great victory. Someone I'm going to send. He restores their hope. He gives hope to the hopeless. That's the hope he offers us, right? Like we can find our innocence. Now in a certain, in, in one sense, no, right? We cannot go back to being completely innocent. But in another sense, yeah, yes, absolutely. Because the one who comes down the line it's Jesus, by the way. That's the one who comes. He's going to come down the line, and he's going to pay for all of our sins so we can be seen as innocent before God. We can be guiltless before God. Not only that, but we can be free of, you know, innocence, like the idea is this kind of unknowing, right? When you're in sin, there is something that happens where you are incredibly self-aware, like you are thinking, you are consumed by your sin. So you're always thinking about it. And there's something that happens when God changes us, when he sanctifies us, that makes us less, almost less image conscious, in a sense. Less thinking about all of ourselves and our needs and our preferences and what I want and what's not going exactly the way that I planned it to go. There's something that happens where we are afraid of that. And we can find intimacy. This is one of the great things that Jesus does, that he accomplishes on the cross, that we can have intimacy with God, that the veil of the temple is torn, and we can be in this, we can, we can have this relationship, and not just with God, but with one another, and, and we can find God. This is, this is the big one, but we can find God awesome again, because when you only fear God's judgment, you can't find him awesome. You're always scared. You're always, like, scared of what he's going to do. You're scared of what people are going to find out. You're scared of um, people hurting you or what's going to happen or failing or not being good enough. And what Jesus does, when, when Jesus is our treasure, we can find God awesome again because we can, when we think of God, we don't think of judgment, but we think of grace. We think, oh, man, he's forgiven me. How does this work in the Christmas season? 
So this is the danger, right? The promises of sin, of false hope, are in full effect this season. So all the stuff that I talked about, you know, all the, the kind of Christmassy stuff and trees and gifts and, you know, family and community and all these kind of things, like, they can be good when they point us to Jesus. They can be bad when they point us away from Jesus or when we get into kind of this hoping just in the thing. Usually what it leads us to is a lot of comparison and a lot of, you know, well, why am I not at that party or why are these people doing this without me? Or like, man, that family looks really like put together and mine is a mess and all of these kind of things. And, um, you know, social media is a big culprit of this, right? Um, Let me just say something about social media because I've been battling social media for years, like in my own life, you know, probably from the pulpit too. But, uh, let me, let me just say this, okay, about social media. Uh, here's maybe a way that we can handle it better. Um, your posts can never compete with your feed. You guys understand what I mean by that? Like what you put out can never, ever compete with what you're seeing from other people. Right. And I, I think this is a big reason why people get depressed these days. Like, Depression and anxiety are like off the charts in our society. I, I think this is a huge reason. Because you're constantly seeing. And, and this is the reason, right? Here's why that's true. Here's why I know that that's true. Because you're just one person, right? And your feed is comprised of like hundreds of people. And so what you're doing when you compare is you're comparing one person's highlights to the highlights of 100 people at least, right? Or 200 people or 500 people. Someone's always going to be doing something really cool, right? Like someone's always going to be on vacation. Someone's always going to be, you know, doing something fun or meeting up with old friends or like having a drink, you know, at some special place or out at some restaurant or celebrating an anniversary or a birthday or a whatever, right? Like somebody out of all of those hundreds of people, of course, because and, and that's the only thing that you post on social media. And so, of course, that's what your feed is flooded with. But it has created something in us that's very unhealthy where we think, well, I'm not doing it enough then because look at all the other people who are doing it. The, the, the fair way to do it, right, is to go feed, like, like to go post for post with somebody, right? So you look at all your posts and you pick one person from your feed and you say, I'm going to look at all the stuff that they've done the entire year and I'm going to compare it to what I've done the entire year. Like, that would be a more fair way to do it. It's not healthy. Don't do that. Just go through, then you just become obsessive comparing people, you know, one-on-one, going one-on-one. It's like, it doesn't make sense. But the way that it's designed, it's kind of messed up, right? Because it's going to make you crazy. I mean, it's Christmas time. A ton of people are going to be like, you know, giving gifts and going to parties and having dinners and stuff. Right? Don't you? And you see stuff, and it's like, oh, oh, what the? Like they did that? When was that? It was like last Wednesday. I couldn't go, but, but you know, it's like you still feel like, but uh. so, forget that, right? Like if you have to, uh, <laughs> like I, I have to f- say this to myself because I feel this too. To be to actually even engage in social media in a in a proper way, 
And a lot of times I'll just, I'll just turn it off because I, I just can't handle it. But I really want to encourage you, don't put your hope in those kind of things. Right? Like, don't put your hope in some gift or some party or some, you know, get-together or whatever, these kind of things. It's fine to enjoy those things. It's fine to participate in those things. Certainly we should, in fact. But how can we do that in a way that uses this season to set our hope on Jesus? Because that's really what we need to do, right? Like we need to drop the anchor of our hope in God's promises delivered to us in the person and the work of Jesus. That's what Genesis 3 was pointing forward to. And thankfully, it's already happened for us. We can look back to it. So I want to give you just um, a couple applications. Um, It's just this. Remember and anticipate. Like, this is a way that we can step into this season and have our hearts pointed back to Jesus. Just remember and anticipate. Okay, remember that Christ has come. He's come. That which was promised in Genesis 3 at the height of hopelessness, which God promised, he said, hey, here's hope for you. I'm going to fix this. That's already happened for us. Throughout, all throughout Scripture, right? And here's two ways that we can remember, right? One, remember God's faithfulness to his people. Like Ephesians 2 talks about when you become a Christian, for if you're not Jewish, I think most of us are not Jewish. You know, so if you don't have a Jewish lineage, right, then you don't have the the cultural history of God's people. But what Ephesians says is, but what you, and and many texts in the Bible say this, but you but you're kind of you're bought into it. You know, you're adopted into the family. So everything that is the lineage of of the Jewish people, like basically all the Old Testament, that's your lineage too. That's your heritage. That's what God has done for you, for your people. Right? And so when we look back, we can have this sense of like, man, God's been faithful to me. God's been faithful to, to my people because he's allowed this to happen so that I could be saved. Right? That is really what, this is the importance of looking at scripture, right? When we see, oh man, God's historical faithfulness. So I would, you know, we're actually going to send out, uh, starting tomorrow, um, you know, an Advent reading kind of guide. And so it's just... You know, it's passages from the Old Testament. It'll lead up to through Christmas, uh, the Christmas story, you know, about Jesus. But I really encourage you to just engage with it. It's just, you know, short passages. Really, most of it's like prophecy about the one who will come, like we read today from Isaiah 9, you know, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 40, like these things about someone's going to come. Someone's going to come to build up hope in the promises of God. I really encourage you to do that. So remembering God's faithfulness to his people um, secondly, by way of remembering, remember God's faithfulness to you, right? Like use this season to be a time when you can reflect on God's faithfulness to you. You know, it's the end of the year too, right? So remember the things that you can celebrate. You know, for many of us, if you're a believer, there was a time when you were hopeless in sin and God pulled you out of that and he's been doing work in you. He's been showing his grace to you. There's been ways that God has grown you. There have been ways that God has changed you. There's things that have happened in our lives, right? You've, uh, you know, a bunch of people here have, like, been engaged, you know, gotten engaged, for example. Like, that's, a, that's an awesome thing. Like, that's something to celebrate. Celebrate the people in your life. Celebrate your friends. Celebrate your family, right? Remember how God is faithful to you in those things. 
Celebrate your relationships, church, you know, people around you. Remember those things and really celebrate them. And secondly, um, anticipate, right? And anticipate the good things God has in store for you and his return. Um, and I would, I would really like the most, I would say the, the easiest way to do this is just pray. Um, and, and pray and hope. <laughs> if you do pray already a lot, you know, I would say pray and speak in hope. Pray and speak in hope. And what I mean is pray remembering all that God has done. Remembering that, pray for your future. So remembering God's faithfulness, remembering God's faithfulness to his people, remembering God's faithfulness throughout thousands of years of history, remembering God's faithfulness to you and how he called you when you didn't even care about him. He called you out of sin. He called you into his family. He called you to be his child. He adopted you. Right? He sent his son Jesus to purchase life for you who died on the cross, who's paid for all of your sins, who's resurrected from the dead, how he's changing you, how he's sanctifying you, the things that he's taught you, the lessons that he's brought to you, all of these things. Pray remembering those things for your future. Pray and hope that he will deliver you from sin. Pray and hope that he will heal those parts of you that are broken. Pray and hope that he will mend those relationships that need mending, that he will stir those who need stirring, that he will empower those who need empowering, that he will lead you, that he will guide you to where you need to be, to those who, who need your gifts, your words, your leadership, your shepherding, your followership, your support, your testimony, to those who need his presence that you carry, the gospel that you proclaim. Pray in hope knowing that God wants to answer those things and he will answer those things for he has answered those things in the past. Pray and speak and hope. And this is what this season is about, but wait in anticipation for what God will do because he will do something. Like that, I can put all of my confidence in, right? It's not because it's not on me. If it was something that depended on me, I would not put, wouldn't be so confident, but it's on God. Pray and hope and wait in anticipation to witness what God does. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for hope, God. I know that sometimes it's hard to hold on to hope, God, in the world that we live in, um, in this kind of age of information coming at us constantly, God, in an in a age of social media when it seems like so many good things are happening to other people and sometimes we can't recognize the things that you're doing in our lives, God. Um, but we thank you so much, God, that Upon sin entering the world, upon the, uh, you know, on the heels of 
a completely desperate and hopeless situation in Genesis 3, God, the first thing that you deliver is hope. Help us, God, to step into this season with hope, God, with anticipation, believing not only that you are glorious, God, but that there is more glory of you for us to behold. God, not only that you are faithful, but there is so much more faithfulness that you have to demonstrate to us in our lives. Not only that you are powerful, God, but that there are miracles yet for us to witness. That you are waiting to deliver. As soon as we pray for them, God. Give us hope as we remember you, Jesus, this season. We thank you so much. We love you and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray.